0: Yo, welcome to Ruf on this crazy, rainy, uh, stormy night. Uh, My name is Simon Stokes. I'm the Ruf Campus Minister here. It's good to be with y'all tonight um, to be dry and to shelter together from the storm. And uh, one of the fun things about being able to stand up here at the start of announcements is I can kind of talk about whatever I want to talk about. And so (laughs) this is my shot. this is how you know that you have two kids is, uh, initially the way that I was going to announce this was there was going to be this kind of symbolism with like three baby birds in a nest. And that I was going to put Emery and Caroline's face on one and then question mark on the other. And then because we have two kids, we don't have time for that, <laughs> but Katie and I are expecting our third kid. <laughs> Which we're very excited about, super excited about, um, uh it's due april 17th like all the other stokes babes this far we're probably not going to find out if it's a girl or a boy we don't necessarily care um we just hope for a healthy happy little baby and uh if if the other two are any kind of um i don't know if they're any kind of Way to tell from, for this one, it'll probably be later than April 17th. So probably like April 23rd, end of April. But we're super excited. Uh, hopefully we make it to summer conference again this year. <laughs> it could be tough. Uh, but, man, it, when we first got, or when we were interviewing for jobs when we were in seminary, uh, we had an offer, or not an offer, but we were interviewing for a place in L.A., uh, in California, or we were interviewing for UNC with RUF, and we turned down, we stopped the interviews in L.A. because we knew that college kids would be better for our family and that it would be better to be with y'all and have y'all uh, kind of around our family and loving our girls than it would be to live in L.A., and so we're happy to have kids um, around y'all and with y'all, so we love it, and we're happy to be here with y'all. Um, Anyway, (laughs) now that the point of privilege is over. (laughs) Y'all, this semester we're going through uh, the book of Psalms. Uh, Obviously don't have time to do all 150 of those things. Uh, But I'm kind of picking and choosing, again, point of privilege, uh, things that I think are most helpful for us. And tonight uh, I'm looking at Psalm 27 and talking about what does it mean to actually pray? What does it mean to be with God and live and to participate in God's life with Him? So this is Psalm 27. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For you will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me, turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O oh God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O oh Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the well of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe Thou shalt look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord." Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, it is upon you that we wait. It's upon you that we hope. It's upon you that we rest our faith. And God, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. Lord, that you would guide us along the way of life. Um, Lord, that if there are those here who don't know you and who are dead in their sins and their trespasses, God, we pray that you would raise them to life. God, that for those of us who are hurt and broken, my Lord, I pray you would bind us up and heal us. God, I pray that we would seek your face. Lord, you've commanded us to do that. God, give us what we need now to do so. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Yale law professor, uh, Amy Chua, I think I'm saying her last name right, she wrote a book that kind of made a splash a couple of years ago called Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. Maybe the most dramatic book title I've ever heard. Uh, but basically, it's a book detailing kind of her philosophy of parenting. She she says in the book it's uh, Asian philosophy of parenting versus Western style, but a lot of Asian parents have pushed back on her and said, this is kind of your thing, lady. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> you'll know why in a second. Uh, but she describes a birthday that she has in the book where her husband took her out to this Italian restaurant with the two girls who were four and seven at the time, uh, Lulu and Sophie. And uh, she talks about this birthday in this book, and this is what she says. She uh, says, Her husband has taken her to this Italian place, and she's mad about it. It's not the place that she would like to be. And her kids, kind of sensing that, they bring out the homemade birthday cards for her and are trying to smooth things over. This is what she writes. She says, and no one can tell this better than Amy. I'm just literally reading this to you. She says, I grabbed the homemade birthday card again and flipped it over. I pulled out a pen from my purse and scrawled, Happy birthday, Lulu. Whoopee. I added a big sour face. What if I gave you this for your birthday, Lulu? Would you like that? But I would never do that, Lulu. No. I get you magicians and giant slides that cost me hundreds of dollars. I get you huge ice cream cakes shaped like penguins. And I spend half my salary on stupid sticker and eraser party favors that everyone just throws away. I work so hard to give you good birthdays. I deserve better than this. So I reject this. I threw the card back. I know. Eyes wide with terror, Sophia, the next daughter, slowly pulled out her own card. It was bigger than Lulu's, made of red construction paper, but while more effusive, equally empty. She had drawn a few flowers and written, I love you, happy birthday to the best mommy in the world, number one mommy. That's nice, Sophia, I said coldly, but not good enough either. When I was your age, I wrote poems for my mother on her birthday. I got up early and cleaned the house and made her breakfast. I tried to think of creative ideas and made her coupons that said things like, One free car wash. I wanted to make something better, but you said I had to play piano. Sophia protested indignantly. You should have gotten up earlier, I responded. Needless to say, Katie and I have read her book and it has revolutionized our (laughs) parenting. You're welcome, number three. Uh, (laughs) Kidding. Um, (laughs) You can see why the Asian parents were like, this is your thing, lady. Uh, (laughs) But I'm kidding, but I mean, I tell that story because I think that there's a tendency in our heart to look at God in that way. I mean, do we look at that God in that way? That God is never pleased with us? I and mean, do you have this deep, deep fear that He's staying over you and saying, come on, is that all you got? Like, I reject this. Does that sense of God drive you to try and be good? Or to do as much spiritual work as possible, but you've got kind of this sense that maybe in the back of your head, like, one day... Maybe when I'm dead and there's not anything else I can do, and I'm in heaven and I can rest, then he'll finally be pleased with me. But until then, we kind of tell ourselves, you know, this is what I got. I'm just going to live under this rain cloud of guilt. I think deep down, that is our default. But when you read the Bible, what actually seems to be the goal? What were you made for? It talks about joy. It talks about love. It talks about peace. That's not just that would it be in you. That's there actually talks about that that stuff is actually in God. That he gives that to you and meets you in that. I don't know about you, but for me the dream is that one day I would be like this very old man and I would know deep down in my bones that God loves me and cares for me. Isn't that what you want too? How would you get from that rain cloud of guilt over here To that place where you're old and you know, man, God loves me. God loves me. How would you get there? I think this psalm actually gives us a pretty good roadmap for that. It gives us a way to think about that. Tonight I want to look at this psalm, I just want to ask two questions about living life with God. First, how do we talk to ourselves when we live with God? How do we talk to ourselves when we live with God? And second, how does God talk to us? How do we talk to ourselves and how does God talk to us? So how do we talk to ourselves when we live with God? To begin with, who is David talking to in the first six verses of this psalm? It doesn't seem like he's talking to God. It actually seems like he's talking to himself. He's telling himself what he's not afraid of. There's evildoers, there's armies, his enemies, which if you know anything about David's life, were many. Just from a human perspective, I think some of those fears would be legitimate. Like, there are evildoers that are assailing him in order to eat up his flesh. Like, this is poetry, so it's kind of big, bold, brash language, right? But dang. I mean, it's like David is not afraid of the zombie apocalypse, right? (laughs) Why? Because it's not just that David is living life with God. It's that David is looking at his life through the lens of God's character, and he's telling himself what's true about who God is. Look, you and I have lots of things that we're afraid of. You're afraid of missing out. You're afraid of being alone. You're afraid of failing, afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of not living a significant enough life, but we're also afraid of cracking under the pressure that we sometimes feel in order to be significant. There are lots of things that we're afraid of. It's part of why we can wrestle so much with anxiety. For some of you, you suffer from panic attacks. You ever wonder where that fear comes from? There's an old British pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones He said that one of our main problems that we run into is that we listen to ourselves instead of we talk to ourselves. Like you listen to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Like, for instance, think about those thoughts that come into your head like when you first wake up in the morning. Like they come from inside of you, but you're not consciously thinking them. They're just there kind of welling up from inside. They bring up problems from yesterday. They make you churn on upcoming assignments in your to-do list. They make you rehash old conversations that you'd rather not think about. And what Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out was that you know, when that's happening, when you're first waking up and you kind of hit the snooze button and you're just lying there in bed, somebody is talking to you. Who is talking to you? It's yourself that's talking to you, what the Bible calls your heart, the innermost kind of kernel of who you are. And one of the main arts of spiritual living is knowing how to handle yourself and not to listen to yourself so much as you talk to yourself. Which is funny, I know, because it might sound like you've got to be a little crazy so you don't go all the way crazy, but think about it like this. Say you wake up tomorrow morning and you hit that snooze button and you kind of curl back over in your sheets and you just kind of lying there. And it's like there's this shrill voice inside of you telling about how because of Florence and the surprise week off we all got, your tests and your papers have gotten bumped up, and now you're behind, and there's no way to catch up, and you know what else? You haven't taken time to read the Bible or pray. And this voice just lays into you and starts listing the people you're disappointing. Your teachers, your parents, your standards, God's standards. <clears throat> what Martin Lloyd-Jones would say to you is that when that happens, you've got to speak to your heart. Speak to yourself and say, you know what? I'm going to do my best. And maybe I'll ask for an extension. I don't know. Not the ideal. I hope that it goes well. But at the end of the day, it's not me or what I can do, but God. That the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Certainly not you, self. That so much of living with God is living with yourself in light of who God is. That he's going to protect you. He'll give you dignity when people try to hurt you. That when you know God in the way that David is talking about, you don't have to scramble to protect yourself or be your own deliverer from your own fears. Nor do you have to work for him as there was some kind of impossible to please authority figure in your life, like the Amy Chua in the sky, right? Oftentimes we want our fear and anxiety to get fixed by a change in our circumstances. Like you want your sweet mate to transfer to state. Right? <laughs> or we would like to get, you know, when things are piling up, another unexpected break from school. <laughs> right? But would that really fix your fear? Like, no. There would always be something else to, that you have to deal with. If it's not this thing over here, it's that thing over there. And what God is saying through this psalm is that the way you're going to stop being so afraid is not through a change in your circumstances or your situation, but your fear is going to get resolved through a person. Through looking at the, the lens of who God is and talking yourself through that. Look, David here is more confident in who he knows God to be than how he knows God to fix this situation. He says, God's my light. God's my salvation. God's my stronghold. Even if an army gathers against me, God's going to work that out. He's looking at his life through the lens of who God is. Think also about how this affects the way that you think about being mature, or being a mature person. Usually when we think about being mature, it's about our circumstances, or it's about us. You say to yourself, when I'm mature, I'll be more independent. I'll be financially independent from my parents, and do my own thing. I'm not going to be so concerned with what other people think of me. This is the you that's eating better, exercising more, probably making some money, and there's like this spiritual component in there too. You know, I'm reading my Bible consistently, praying, starting an orphanage, you know, whatever that is down there, right? And you know, to be mature, some of those things might be there. Spiritually mature people tend to read Scripture and pray and care about the downtrodden. But are those things the basis of maturity? Or are they the result? They're the result. Because the heart and soul of spiritual maturity is that you want one thing, to know God and that from there you would make him known. You would live in the lens of who he is. That more than doing for God, the main thing here is being with God. There simply is no better cure for your fears and anxieties. There's no other better way to understand who you are and how to grow than to know God and to look to God. I mean, when you read this psalm, does David come across as mature? Does he come across as Brave? He's not afraid of armies, of war, of enemies. He's not afraid of conflict, right? That's huge. He's incredibly confident in God. In fact, he even says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Armies don't care about him. Enemies don't care about him. He's brave, right? He's not worried about the armies out there. He just wants to live with God. So what does this say about spiritual maturity then? It says that you never read the Bible and hear someone say, "You know, thank you God that I finally understand me. Thank you God that I'm finally working out the problems that I had in my life. But you do have someone like the Apostle Paul pray that his friends in Ephesus, would have the eyes of their hearts opened, that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, and they'd be filled with the fullness of God. Paul's prayer, another spiritually mature person, Paul's prayer for his friends is that they would know God. And that's God's prayer for you too, that you would know him, walk with him, understand him more than anything else, that you would be with him and he with you. The author Brennan Manning tells a story of a priest who's from Detroit, and he went on a two-week summer vacation to Ireland to visit his relatives there, and his one living uncle was about to celebrate his 80th birthday. And so on the day of the big celebration, this priest and his uncle got up early to walk along the edge of this beautiful mountain lake in Ireland. And so they're walking along, and it's like green rolling hills, sheep scattered on the hillside, like old castles and ruins in the background. It's just beautiful. And they stop, and they watch it for a few minutes. And then this guy looks over his uncle, and he sees his uncle just beaming from ear to ear. And he says, Uncle Seamus, you look so happy right now. And his old 80-year-old uncle says, I am. And the priest says, how come? And the old man says that the Father of Jesus is very fond of me. The Father of Jesus is very fond of me. Could you say that kind of thing to yourself? That the Father of Jesus is very fond of me. Wouldn't that cure a lot of our fears and anxieties? would it answer a lot of insecurities about who we are? What does it look like for us to grow and mature? To know deep down in your bones that the Father of Jesus is very fond of you, loves you, looks on you, thinks of you. He's not this mean person in the sky who demands things you can't give. But what he wants is you and to be with you and he's fond of you. How would we get that? How would we get to the place where we could say those kind of words to ourselves? Point two. We have to listen to how God talks to us. We've got to listen to how God talks to us. Look what David says that God told him here. God can command anything He wants to command, right? He's God. He does what He wants. You have said, seek my face. And then the reply of David is, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Look, secular social scientists have argued that all human prayer is this kind of exercise of power, to kind of we exert kind of mental or emotional energy like, oh, I'm going to waste some time here like just thinking on God or like, I'm going to give some sort of energy or anxiety towards God. It's this kind of internal self-sacrifice so that God is moved to answer. But that's not what's going on here, is it? There's no power game on David's behalf. In fact, it doesn't begin with David at all. It's God that commands that he would be sought out. And then David responds. The Psalms assume... Right from the get-go, the priority of the inner life with God. In fact, the most important part of biblical spirituality is not that you would do a bunch of stuff for God, but that you would actually live with God. I mean, that's the whole shape of the Bible, isn't it? That God makes the world. He crafts this beautiful garden for man and woman to live in. He walks with them in the cool of the day. But then they sin, and that communion, that fellowship they have with God is broken. And it rends his heart. And the whole rest of the Bible is about God restoring that fellowship that they had at the beginning. This is why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. He dies on a cross to reconcile us to God. So we could be with God. So when Jesus departs, He leaves the Holy Spirit with His people. Because God desires to dwell with us and in us. And we were made to dwell with Him. It's why the book of Revelation ends with this loud voice from the throne. The very voice of the Father proclaiming the dwelling places with God. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. I mean, this is what God is about. This is what God calls us into when we walk through those doors and we sing these songs. And, you know, I just, I've got to say this as a pastor and someone who's been a Christian for I mean almost 20 years now. That there's a way we can know that up here. Man, it is so hard to get down into here and to believe that, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like this. What if you had never tasted honey before in your entire life? Like what if you never tasted that? I mean, you could know kind of from a rational way that it was sweet or not. Like you can have an opinion about it. Like your friends could tell you it was sweet. You could read scientific articles about it. like they have concluded honey is the sweet thing. And you could have never tasted it for yourself. And believe it in your mind. But then there's another way in which you could just take a drop and put it on your finger and pop it in your mouth and be like, wow. like This thing is really sweet. right? This is really good. I had known up here, but I hadn't known down here. In the same way, there's like this difference between having heard that God is kind and loving and a good father. And even really maybe having an opinion about that. Like, yeah, I would kind of agree with those things. There's a difference between that and not ever having experienced that for ourselves. And what God is saying is that we need to know just not all those things out there that David is talking about, like that those are true. But God actually wants us to know those things for you and for me. That you and I have known and tasted the sweetness of those things in ourselves and seen that God is very good. That that's what God says when He says, seek my face he doesn't tell us how to seek His face. He doesn't say you have to seek it perfectly. I mean, have you ever prayed and gotten discouraged when you fell asleep? Or got distracted? Like, ha, this isn't going well. I quit. Right? I've done that many times. God knows you do that. And yet He still says seek. Don't you sometimes wish the Bible would just drop a how-to prayer guide into your lap? Like, would not it make this thing that seems so crucial and yet so difficult at times much easier? But the Bible never offers us a how-to on prayer. I mean, it offers us prayers. That's what the Psalms are, but none of them are kind of a how-to. Instead, what it offers us is something much, much richer. It offers the God of prayer. What the Bible shows you and me are many, many pictures of God. as a creator, a king, a husband, a shepherd, a rock, a light, a savior, a father, a friend. It says, look at God and when you look at him, prayer will follow. This is why our prayers actually have to be rooted in the Bible. Because otherwise our prayer lives will be shallow, right? Because I'm looking inside of me and trying to dredge something up. And I'm just a shallow person by nature. But they also won't be grounded in reality either. That have left our own devices, our hearts are going to invent a God to pray to. Like Usually this God is kind of indifferent. Like he doesn't really care. Or he's angry. Like he's kind of mean. Without this powerful sense of who God is and his care and attention, it's kind of like, you know, when things are going well, who needs God? I've got this. But then again, when things are bad, it can lead us to despair or discouragement. The the Bible to guide us, God becomes this sort of abstract person up there. This is why prayer isn't just a way to get things from God, but it's a way to get more of God himself. Look, people for a long, long time have described prayer as the way to take hold of God. The way that people in ancient times used to see someone who was very wealthy wear these kind of big, long, rich, flowing robes, and they kind of grab the cloak of this important person and say, Help me. Help me. I need you. I need you. Or the way that you embrace someone to show that you love them, right? Like, you don't walk up to your friend and hug them and say, like, as you've got them in your embrace, Now that we're here, can I borrow like $20? Right? <laughs> yeah. You hug that person because you want to be close. And it's nice to hug a friend. Look, that's why Christians pray because they see God for God's sake. And without the gospel, you and I could conceive of a God who's really holy and distant but never satisfied. We could only approach him maybe if we were really good. Or we could think of someone that has just kind of positive regard for everybody, kind of this granddad in the sky. And to approach one of those gods is terrifying and uncertain, right? To approach the other god is just kind of boring. Like, it doesn't really matter. But to seek the God of the Bible is to seek the God of Jesus. It's to seek Jesus' face. The one who said that, you know, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. It's to seek the face that was streaked by tears, like your tears, who bore a crown of thorns for you. That the only time in the Gospels when Jesus prays to God and doesn't call Him Father is on the cross when He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That you and I were made for communion with God, and yet Jesus was cut off from this communion that He had forever, so that you could experience it and be a part of it. So that you could see Him and look God in the face with boldness. And say, I need you. I want to be with you. Heal me. Make me whole. Help me. Take away these fears that I have. Not by changing my circumstances, but by changing me. So I would actually know you. Look, in the gospel, you see a a love that goes so low... That he, he will get into anything that you ask Him to get into. And you'll love that's so high that you know that when you speak to Him, you speak to the, into the very ear of God Himself. Like that's the face that you have when you speak into in prayer. Look, like because of this, because of Jesus, Christians don't seek God to gain a reward or to avoid punishment because their punishment fell on Jesus. And the reward itself is Jesus. But Christians seek God because they want to know God. And so, this whole thing just begs the question of when you read this, what do you think David is visualizing when he thinks of God's face? What do you visualize? Is it anger? Is it disappointment? Is it sadness? Is that the sense you get from David when he calls God light? Or from Jesus when he calls God the Father? Look, we tend to have this problem of making God out to be just this other very high-pressure authority figure. But when we hear God telling us to seek His face, the face that we seek is the face of Jesus. And that's what God is calling you into, is to know His face and to know it in Christ. So I want to end with this. There's a guy named Thomas Goodwin. He was a, a pastor like 200 years ago. And he tells this story that one day he's walking in the streets of London and there's people selling and buying and there's just crowds of people walking up and down the streets. Not that much different than if you were to go to London today. And he says up ahead of him he sees this father and this young son walking. And the father is walking beside the son and talking to him for a few minutes and then suddenly he just reaches down and snatches the boy up and holds him and hugs him and gives him a kiss And whispers in his ear, I love you. And he continues to walk that way for a few minutes and then he just sets him down. And they walk side by side. And Thomas Goodwin said, you know, before that boy got picked up, was he any more or less a son? No, I mean, he was always a son. But when he got picked up by his father and held and loved... Did he feel more like a son? A hundred percent he did. What God is calling you to, when he says, Seek my face, is that you would know the reality of what it is to be a child of God. That you would know a Father who holds you and loves you, and says, Everything that I have is yours. Everything you have is mine. Like that's what God calls us into in prayer. And that's what we offer you tonight. So you would seek God's face and know him as a good father. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you love us. God, that you call us to seek your face. And as we seek your face, we find the face of Jesus. A face that was streaked by tears for our sins. A face that looks us in the face and knows us and loves us. God, help us to know him by faith us to walk beside him in life. God, carry us, watch over us, give us what we need. Lord, you don't ever call us to seek you and not be able to find you. Lord, help us to find you in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.